0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower this week in Gainesville, Florida. On this week's edition, Unilever digs into plant-based foods, talking sustainable consumption for World Consumer Rights Day, and why microgrids and indoor agriculture go together like peas and carrots. We're all going viral. Oh wait, is that too soon? this week on
1: 350
0: it's march 13th 2020 friday the 13th lucky us Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, as she does each week, is GreenBiz editorial director Heather Clancy.
2: Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Am I allowed to groan over that really <laughs> bad pun? Uh,
0: well, you just sort of did. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, we don't we don't cover coronavirus, uh, but, but you know, it's hard to t- it's hard to talk about anything else right now. and We're going to talk about lots of other things uh, on this episode, but kind of have to give it a nod. It's just the story. Uh, well, certainly of the week, of the month, possibly the year, and very possibly of the of of the decade so far, it's just um, it's just permeating everything you do. Everybody you meet, you know, has some. Well, do we shake hands? Do we fist bump? Do we whatever? What do we do? Do we just nod and bow or curtsy or whatever? And all the way through, you know, what am I touching right now? You know, if I'm out of the house in particular, what am I touching? So yeah. it's just it's just become who we are right now.
2: Well, you went out of the house, Joel, though, this week. You're in Florida. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I spent, I spent this week in the southeastern portion of the United States. So just to give you the quick itinerary, I was in Kingsport, Tennessee, beginning of the week at Eastman, uh, the uh, formerly Eastman Chemical. They're like, trying to rebrand a little bit, like Dow and others who have dropped the C word from their name. Eastman is a 100-year-old a uh, company founded by George Eastman of Kodak fame and it's spun off a uh, a number of years ago, but they've got some really interesting um, circular and climate story that, they, that I was covering and I'm going to be writing about sometime in the next uh, couple of three weeks, and uh, just really interesting uh, transformation story that aligns uh, some of our, our big issues, notably you know, circular economy and, and climate change with pretty massive business opportunity around plastics and uh, again with circularity. So more to come on that. Um, so that was the beginning of the week, and then um, later on, I was I spent a couple of days in as I as I am here now in Gainesville, Florida, which is of course home to the University of Florida, and I, I spent a, a day and a half talking a whole bunch of things, uh, conducting some roundtables. Bra- bra- brown bag lunch uh, and an evening lecture to the community about uh, all things sustainable business. But I always, always love being uh, on campus. Uh, it, it's it's just stimulating, inspiring. I learn a lot uh, without trying, just uh, by engaging with the student body. And uh, that's certainly the story this week.
2: So is everything copacetic there? I mean, I I, I hear about schools creating online if you will, learning uh, environments for the next couple of weeks. What's uh, anything going on? Anything yeah, I think
0: on? I think most schools are, are if, if they're not already doing something, they're certainly looking at it. Uh, yeah, here in Gainesville, the University of Florida, they uh, earlier this week. Um, urged I don't know if it was commanded or urged classes to start going online over the next period of time it wasn't an immediate shutdown and to do that for the rest of the semester through may so you know you can tell on campus uh, this week um, I mean I've never I don't really know the campus and how busy it is but you know, there are plenty of people around may not have been as packed as as before but just like the airports you know which I've been several this week uh, uh, were full, and um some of the planes were full some of them I had a row of to myself, so it's a we're still in this transitional time. I can tell you that this is probably my last trip for a while. I had several things planned, but they've all been cancelled, including the series conference in New York the third week of March, and so I will be staying close to home, not exactly um you know holding up in at home but um just trying to be a little bit less public. So, how about you? Are you feeling it on your everyday activities?
2: Well, I just, I've noticed the sort of more quiet uh, atmosphere of, of public <laughs> gatherings. I, was, I went to dinner last night and someone was a hugger and someone was a, an elbow bumper. And <laughs> I, you know, I kind of, I'm grappling with it. I actually, I just want to put a shout out to our community. We would love to hear. If anyone in our sustainability community is, is handling any challenges, is seeing any challenges related to coronavirus, we don't want to overblow this story. But if you're feeling it um, in your exact work, we, please reach out and let us know. We'd, we'd like to help understand and explore that a little bit. So um, we don't want to make more of it than, than it is, but we also certainly don't want to ignore something that's a, a, a concern and that we could help uh, resolve for you. So. Yeah,
0: so you send that to three hundred and fifty at greenbiz dot com, and and also just you know how uh, is the the virus and and all the impacts of that connecting to your work in sustainability? Um, is it creating new opportunities? Is it creating barriers? Uh, is there is something different other than what we're all experiencing on a personal level, or or maybe having to work from home or uh, not go to the office? But is is there anything actually related to what you do every day? In your, in your work in sustainability. We'd love to hear about that. Send it to Heather and me at 350 at greenbiz.com. So let's uh, move over and talk about the Week in Review. Let's begin with a piece from our good friend, Bill Weil. Uh, Bill, if you don't know, is uh, a former head of sustainability at Facebook, and before that, was the Energy Czar at Google. You may have seen a piece that uh, I wrote, I guess, uh, last week. <laughs> it seems so long ago about a new organization. Well, it's actually more of an initiative. It's not officially an organization that Bill started called Climate Voice, which is uh, working to persuade uh, both employees and prospective employees, which is which is to say, uh, job-aged college students, to press companies. To take a leadership role, of an advocacy role, uh, to have a climate voice on legislation on policy matters related to climate change, and uh, uh, in the piece I did, I named three pieces of legislation that they're starting with, and one of them, the Virginia Clean Economy Act in the Commonwealth of Virginia, passed, uh, and it passed with the help of companies. And so Bill wrote uh, a piece about that. I think it's, this is probably going to be a good case study or uh, object lesson in, in the role of companies in pushing uh, states, in this case, for uh, leadership roles on, on climate and energy, and in this case, clean economy. Uh, so uh, eight companies, he mentions Akamai Technologies, IKEA, Kaiser Permanente, uh, Mars Incorporated, Nestle USA, Schneider Electric, Unilever, and Worthen Industries. That's the one I don't know. Worthen Industries uh, signed a letter of support for this, and uh, lo and behold, it, it's been passed. Had not yet, as of this airing, has been signed by the governor, but we expect that probably this month. Although everything seems to be up for grab this month, so we'll, we'll, but we uh, but we we expect that to pass. So yeah, this is uh, um, one for one, I guess, for Climate Voice.
2: <laughs> one for one, you know. And when I look at this this sort of uh, development, I do notice who hasn't signed. And so when I first heard about it, I noticed that there were a couple of good technology companies. But I also know that Virginia is a big data center haven for for companies like Amazon, and they they weren't there. And so I'm I'm I got to be honest. I, I know I'm like I'm like the eternal like Pollyanna here. But I'm going to start looking at who's not on these bills and who's not supporting them and wondering why. And I think you'll hear us being more skeptical at GreenBiz about the ones that aren't speaking up. I don't want to be bashing companies, but I do notice uh, that Amazon, although it talks a good game at the CEO level, they just, I don't, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing things happening at the grassroots level like this. Um, and I'm also going to be watching the two other bills that are mentioned in this particular piece. The Illinois is considering the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Uh, and then we also have some, some states here in the very in the Northeast, where I live in the Atlantic region, that are talking about the transportation and climate initiative. So we, we've got um, there's a there is a, the the regional greenhouse gas initiative, and uh, there are more compa- uh, excuse me more states are joining that, and now we see that spreading out. So I'm going to be watching that that as well. So the transportation initiative is particularly interesting because anytime you try to pass. Uh, a, a new infrastructure effort in 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 New York or New Jersey or Connecticut you require you need the other states involved, and there's been a lot of stalling you know pun intended uh, of good really good projects because one state gets their their nose out of joint uh, about certain parts of it and they don't look at the the greater good but i do I do believe that the the companies in these regions really have to step up their act so i'm I'm watching.
0: Well, yeah, I, a good point on you know who wasn't at the table, and and yeah, there's always going to be some big companies that aren't, and and I think that's um, part of what what Bill Weil and Climate Voice want to be leaning into. Uh, but you know, a win is a win, and uh, however slim, or and I'm not saying this was, but uh, you know, whatever it takes uh, these days, and so uh, I think that's positive, and I think again, it's it's going to be. Uh, Something we can point to later on about uh, what's possible when companies actually not only step up, but speak up uh, on these issues. But um, speaking of an appetite for change, let's do a story that you did this week about uh, plant-based protein and a new company from a former senior executive at Unilever. Uh, Do tell.
2: Do tell. I did like that pun. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, yes, we have a new company called Live Kindly. It is actually a collective of companies. Live Kindly was a media company that, that was writing, that, that brand, if you will, that was uh, covering the plant-based food movement. And it is now being put t- together into a sort of collective of companies that uh, is being run by the former president of Unilever North America, Case Kreithoff. Um, and Live Kindly has already made two acquisitions. They are buying a company called the Fry Family Food Company from South Africa, and Like Meat from Germany. Um, and now these are probably two companies you you might not have heard of. Have you Correct. heard of them, Joel? Okay, no. But uh, they are in uh, the other markets. They're in South Africa, UK, uh, some some places in Europe right now. And what makes them really interesting what one of the first things that popped out to me when i read about this was that they were focused mainly on not beef right so we hear a lot about ground beef and uh, you know ground alternative beef and everyone from cargill to tyson is is now putting their their money into cultivating plant-based alternatives for for burgers essentially um mcdonald's and 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 Burger King have really helped bring attention to it. My husband, actually, by the way, who is who's who's pretty not, not... He doesn't really think about <laughs> a lot of these things all that much. He loves the Impossible Burger at Burger King. He always wants to order that. It's quite interesting. Uh, but I digress. But the, the money... Um, that that he's raised with a organization in collaboration with an organization called Blue Horizon Corporation. So the founder of the company is Roger Leanhart from Blue Horizon Corporation. Two hundred million dollars. It's a lot of money to be sort of, um, uh, if you will, aggregating some of these these startups. And um, the idea is that by creating this sort of scale, that will they'll have a better opportunity to to get into places like Kroger, right, which is the U, the largest U.S. Uh, grocery chain in, and and by the way um, they do plan a in- introduction in the U.S. market in the fourth quarter so kind of interesting he's popped up um, after being quiet for a number of months and uh, this is what he's focusing his attention on
0: yeah and this is kind of what we anticipated in fact uh, in the 2020 State of Green Business report uh, our correspondent and friend Holly Secon wrote a piece about uh, moving beyond beef. With plant-based foods and chickenless chicken, fishless fish, eggless eggs, and pigless pork, and um, that's what we're beginning to see here is starting to move, uh, you know, beyond meat as, as the companies call it, beyond beef in particular, to a series of other kinds of proteins. And I, I think it it really is early days for this. Um, and uh, you know, by the way, uh, one of the things that's really important in this, I think, is particularly in these early days. Of getting people like like Joe, your husband, uh, acclimated and engaged, and hopefully a fan of some of these foods, is how it's cooked. Because um, you know, because you don't cook these foods the same way you cook uh, their their animal equivalent or counterparts, um, and that's a challenge. I've had some uh, impossible and beyond meat burgers that were really good and you know tasted you know pretty close to the you know, the the cow-based equivalent, and some that just were not good at all. They were dry, they were hard, they just didn't work, and so I, I commend a piece uh, in the New York Times uh, on uh, March 3rd called How to Cook with Plant-Based Meats uh, by uh, Kenji Lopez-Alt, who runs a r- restaurant out in California called Wurstall in Silicon Valley. And uh, uh, it's actually a nice piece in terms of, of, of really sort of getting into the, some, if you're a foodie or a, a good cook and want to look at this, I think it's it's very helpful on how you cook it differently than you would cook uh, a traditional hamburger patty in this case, but that's an important part because if we're going to, you know, get the the consumer uptake, uh, you can't just make the stuff, you can't just sell the stuff. You've got to learn how to cook it, and you know, we are, you know, we've as new devices and you know microwaves way back when, and and other kinds of of, of contraptions and and foods come in online. You know, we have to learn new things, and that's certainly mm-hmm. the case here.
2: Yeah, and and live kindly. That's one of the things they they intend to do with their media services is, is promote those recipes and so forth. Yeah, so the point you're making is is a huge. Our our colleague Jim Giles did a great piece on sort of his skepticism around plant based meats, and so I, I think the reason that people are going to plant based foods is really important as well, and that will will signal a lot because people are just kind of I don't know. I think some people are dabbling and they, and they want to. They're not, they're not really thinking about the, um, the reason that they're doing this they just want to try it and then there's others who are really focused on the the environmental implications and you know taking greenhouse gases out and really ha- they have a different reason for, for for going to this sort of thing and I, I think we'll, we'll see a lot more information now moving forward on what is a better alternative from a, an environmental standpoint and we do need more data on that. Um, and, and that's something that Jim, Jim writes a little bit about this week. I've also seen some really cool graphics in places like the Sierra magazine that, that kind of break down like, you know, water consumption and greenhouse gas and how much land and so forth. So I think that is going to become important to talk about as well.
0: Yeah, the, the the actual environmental impact and the and the nutritional impact of some of these things. And you were referring to, to Jim Giles, who's the editor, of, uh, senior analyst, and editor of Food Weekly, the newsletter we launched uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, and you, you can uh, we'll send a link to that. And uh, but you can go to greenbiz.com/newsletters and find that it's he's 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 a great writer and and very thoughtful. And I've really been enjoying reading the pieces he's written so far. But let's uh, move over to a different part of the menu um, and talk about uh, microgrids and uh, and how that syncs up with uh, indoor agriculture, vertical agriculture, uh, urban ag, it sort of goes different names. Uh, this is by our senior analyst and Verge energy chair, Sarah Golden. I really like this piece. It, it shows how microgrids uh, are, are, are being sort of brought to life and to scale, and therefore the costs uh, are coming down for this particular application in indoor ag, growing uh, plants, particularly leafy greens indoors in these massive, now sometimes football or multiple football field size greenhouses that are now uh, sprouting up. And and why this is significant with uh, microgrids are significant in that world and, and sort of the synergy, the symbiosis, I guess, between the two that are going to help uh, both of them grow.
2: Yeah. To put a little finer point on it, these farms take a lot of energy. <laughs> and so it's, it's anywhere between 500 kilowatts and 15 megawatts of capacity that you might need. And so to put that in perspective, that's more than a, like a retail box store, but but less than a data farm. But that's a lot of energy, especially in your if you're in a crowded region. So we know that a lot of vertical farms are popping up in in like abandoned warehouse areas of, of cities. I Newark near me is 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 a is thriving. There, there's a company thriving down there.
0: Aero farms. Yeah,
2: Aero Farms, exactly. Um, but these these things take a lot of energy. The lights uh, can run up to 16 hours a day. The facilities require a lot of of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning equipment, so that you you don't want the plants to stifle or to to get too hot. They, so it needs to be a constant temperature. So all of that takes a lot of power, that that uh, again might not be readily available. It might take a long time to to get the 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 capacity and or the the approval. So lo and behold, some of these companies are starting to study microgrids, and um, there's a couple that have already signed deals with Schneider Electric, which is making which is making a business out of this. Fifth Season and Bowery Farming have, have, have dabbled in this. One of the more interesting data points that I took away from this story was the fact that, it, I didn't even think about this, you don't have to have the plants grow in the daytime, right? So, like, we, we always think of farms and they, 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 they soak up the sunlight, but you could have the lights running in the middle of the night, which, by the way, could be cheaper to run. Um, so, again, just a really a wonderful convergence, if you will, of uh, two markets, the vertical agriculture market as well as uh, microgrids, so, just a great sort of marriage of, of solutions.
0: And I, I just have to give a shout out here to uh, the cannabis industry, which really did pioneer so much of this uh, that's being, that's now porting over to the world of indoor farming uh, for vegetables and produce, uh, other things. Uh, you know, how do you grow food intensively uh, indoors? And um, in, in used to be, and you know, hidden somewhere, but now it's out in the open. But but uh, that those technologies, the hydroponics uh the lighting now uh, and, and the other energy uh, sucking demands uh but how you do that and and, and it is intensive and that's part of uh, the benefits it's also one of the challenges from an energy perspective uh, those are all pioneered uh, in, in in other industries particularly in uh, as as so many of our technologies do start off in the illicit uh, industries of you know pornography and cannabis and other things where uh you know people learn to to do certain things and all of a sudden they become applications for uh, you know, for the rest of us, um, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but I just do always think it's interesting how uh, some of these things that had been pioneered decades ago—you uh, know, by in, in sort of nefarious ways—are now contributing to our sustainability story. I guess there's a lesson somewhere in there. This weekend on March 15th is World Consumer Rights Day, an annual event put on by the London based nonprofit Consumers International. And this year, the focus is on sustainable consumption. Here to talk more about that is the Director General of Consumers International, Helena Laurent. Hello, Helena. Hi, Joel. How are you? Good, thanks. So, for people who aren't that familiar, and Americans in particular, with World
1: Consumer Rights Day, what is that about? So every year, all consumer advocacy groups around the world celebrate World Consumer Rights Day. It's the time when we think about how we as consumers um, act in the economic system. And in some places in the world, we look at uh, what we do as consumers. In other places in the world, we think about what we need more from businesses. Um, And as Consumers International, we manage this on behalf of consumer advocacy groups in 100 countries around the world.
0: About 200 organizations in 100 countries, according to your website. So how did you come to sustainable consumption as a theme?
1: So this was chosen by our members. Um, I was really excited about about that because it's a, a personal passion of mine. Um, Last year we had our global summit that brings together all of our members, Um, it happens only once every four years, and we asked uh, our members, we asked then our elected council, what do you think the theme should be around the world? And they told us that the sustainable consumer uh, was the most important and the most relevant topic uh, for 2020, recognizing that it's the the time when we're looking at how the agreements, how the Paris Agreement has evolved. So sustainable
0: consumption, I think, you know, we've uh, been talking about this for a long time. I've been looking at this for more than 30 years about the so-called green consumer movement. And at some level, some people would say that the premise is kind of flawed, that we can shop our way to sustainability. Um, what do you see as the, are the main messages here in terms of how consumers need to behave differently and, and the messages they need to send to the manufacturers and sellers of the things they buy?
1: Yeah, I I think I recognize that this is um, something that has really been looked at and hoped for for many, many years. So we we, uh, recognize that we're we're standing on the shoulders of giants here. I think the understanding of the urgency has changed, though, um, which is thanks to the great work that's gone before. Um, There's a recognition that we now is a a time for uh, we, we have gone beyond the time for action, I think uh, there is a younger generation of consumers who look at the way they shop differently. The gap between intention and action has narrowed for them, and they are increasingly asking for sustainable choices. I also think the way in which businesses look at uh, this has changed dramatically, Um, and that even over just the past couple of years, although they've been pioneers on this front for some time. So, the the type of conversation that we can have about this is very different. Also, the recognition of what the, the impact that we have somewhere else in the world is much, much greater. And that, I think, gives us a, a more fruitful opportunity for at least raising this issue with people who wouldn't necessarily have thought about it before and making progress to ensure we've got sustainable choices for everyone.
0: You talked about a new generation of consumers, presumably millennials and 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 the mm-hmm. generation after that generation, Greta, as some people are calling it, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but is it limited to those? Because if we have to wait for millennials to become fully fledged uh, consumers, uh, you know, buying not just things but homes and furnishings and 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 maybe automobiles and things, uh, that's a long wait. So who uh, who who is actually can be influenced here?
1: Yeah, I, I'm much more hopeful. I think it's not just the the Gen Zs. Um, and although we are focusing on World Consumer Rights Day in terms of the conversation with that generation, I think they are actually influencing their parents, Um, so the Generation Xs. um, I think you are seeing a a different conversation more broadly, also driven, as I was mentioning before, by companies like Tesla who are making the, the sustainable choice The really irresistible one, and one that isn't just about perhaps something that costs more. It is a different value uh, opportunity for consumers. I think you're going to start to see that kind of innovation, meaningful innovation, in a number of different sectors. um, And that's what makes me quite optimistic.
0: OK, but a Tesla is a 40 or 50 or 60 or 70,000 dollars purchase. Yeah. Uh, and you've got, as you said, uh, uh, 200 organizations in 100 countries, which I, uh, mm-hmm. by definition, is going to be a lot of emerging economies. So what does that yeah. look like there? What does sustainable consumption look like um, in uh, parts of, let's say, Africa or uh, Asia, where consumers are just now knocking on the door of the middle class?
1: Yeah I think this is there are two parts here one is um there is really a need for accessibility to the sustainable products in the first place I think there's a need for a, a recognition that low-income consumers need to have access to sustainable products as much as other places, um, but that the onus for perhaps a a sustainable consumption plan will come in more developed nations. And and that's what you're only starting to see in places like Germany uh, and the Nordics. And we need much more uh, emphasis on what a sustainable consumption uh, approach might be uh, going forward. So finally, how
0: are we going to make uh, this ongoing, not just one day uh, of an annual event? In other words, how are we going to make sustainable consumption sustainable?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's something that's very important for us. This is not just a day. It's the start of a conversation that the consumer movement uh, very much wants to be part of and a constructive part of. I think that has to come across all um, in a variety of different ways. Um, It has to be a a, a first really embedded in some of the policies and standards that we're seeing for consumer products. Um, But more importantly, it has to be a cultural and mindset shift um, that we are looking and asking for the sustainable option um uh, now that's going to take time but i from the passion that i saw in the consumer advocacy groups around the world uh, i think we're at a tipping point
0: well i look forward to seeing that point tip and thanks for spurring and uh, enlarging the conversation beyond uh, those already uh, having it so uh If you want to learn more, you can go to consumersinternational.org. Helena Laurent is the Director General of Consumers International. Thanks so much, Helena.
1: Thank you very much.
0: As I said earlier in this episode, I spent part of this week in Gainesville, Florida at the University of Florida. And uh, joining me now is uh, James Jones, a professor, distinguished professor emeritus in biological and agricultural engineering. I may have gotten that slightly wrong and a a long, long list. Uh, In fact, Jim, talk a little bit about what you've been doing, but talk about what's going on here uh, in, in Gainesville at the University of Florida that led to your wanting to have me here and help catalyze the conversation.
3: Well, at the University of Florida, it's a, it's a large uh, land-grant university that has all disciplines including business and, and medical and, and so forth. And I spent the last uh, three and a half years at the National Science Foundation working on interdisciplinary kinds of things and I could see that by expanding some of the uh, programs that we're doing here at the university with all the talent that we have here, we can make a, a big difference in this whole area of circular economies, or sustainable food and agricultural systems.
0: So uh, what were you hoping would happen as a result? Because I, as I said earlier, I spent the day uh, with a number of roundtables and talking to students about careers, uh, evening event uh, at the auditorium. Uh, what, what do you want to see happen here?
3: Well, I think the University of Florida can be a catalyzer for making this a broader community that is really interested in embracing this whole idea of circular economies for food and agricultural systems. And uh, just previously, before embarking on this here in Gainesville, I presented these ideas to the uh, Board on Agriculture and Natural Resources at the National Academy Academy of, of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine and they they agreed to have a study a major study on this area so i i wanted to make sure that we have uh, faculty members that are in our major universities and not just university of florida but i'm starting here that are engaged in this kind of thing
0: so i was going to ask you are you an army of one here what is the community here at the university that you think wants to be engaged or that you want to engage and, and how cross-cutting is it across departments, disciplines, things like that?
3: Well, I was the director of the Florida Climate Institute and we worked across all disciplines, not just agriculture, but also business and law and uh, liberal arts and sciences to, to develop a community that trusts each other and have got a history of working together across the state on some of these really complex issues. And so I wanted to build on that and have a more purposeful solution-based approach for addressing some of these complex issues
0: and so what's going to happen next what do you want to see happen first and then where does that go what, what does that uh, sort of success look like
3: yeah okay so i would like to see uh, professional societies uh, start working on this within their membership and we've already got the uh, american society of agriculture and biological engineering president and the board there to agree on having this as a priority. And also in chemical engineering, uh, some of the, some of the in chemical engineering folks want to participate in this as well. So we're just starting, but we want this to build out so that we're ready to address some of these complex system of systems problems that we see prevalent in the uh, circular economies for food and agricultural systems.
0: We talked today about sustainability being inherently interdisciplinary, uh, and and here you are trying to bring people to the table. Is that something that I know that's kind of hard in in academia to to look across those silos? Uh, What do you how are you going to do that?
3: Well, first of all, I have a long history of building teams across disciplines, starting with disciplines within agriculture, sciences, and engineering, but then going across to anthropology uh, law uh, different 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 disciplines and I was actually elected to the National Academy of Engineering and I'm in the in, in the interdisciplinary engineering branch of that uh, the organization and so I that's kind of what I do and uh, I think people trust me in, in terms of what what I say is really important and they they follow me now I mean I, I'm fortunate to see that happening but that's I'm going to build on what my successes have been in the past with the Climate Institute and uh, other areas.
0: So do you think we set the stage for that today? You you created this grueling and, and, and actually really fun day of of roundtables and student interactions and community meetups and things. Uh, is that what you were hoping for?
3: Yeah, and for, for your visit here, we were. I was hoping to use your visit to catalyze these different groups around campus to make them aware of each other, because in many cases they weren't but also aware of the international and national importance of this as a uh, solution-based approach to deal with some of these wicked problems that we're having to deal with, particularly in, in natural uh, resources and, and food and agricultural systems.
0: Well, I, I sure enjoyed my time here, and I really appreciate the opportunity. James Jones is a distinguished professor emeritus in agricultural and biological engineering. Thanks so much, Jim.
3: Yeah, thank you, Joel. I really appreciate your coming down and and doing this.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization stories and events we mentioned this week while you're there. Check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six every week, including the Food Weekly that we mentioned earlier. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. And we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.